0: Rashtuni Radio presents The American Indian, a standing indictment against Christianity and statism in America, by R. J. Rashtuni narrated by Robert Halliday, produced with permission by the Calcedon Foundation. Introduction Editor's Note What follows is a transcription of a recorded talk given by the author in Santa Cruz, California. It is believed to date from either the late 1950s or early 1960s. It therefore predates the writing of the chapters in this volume, but was included as a valuable overview of the author's later written observations. It was edited for length and confirmation to standards of written form. In addition, three paragraphs from a deleted chapter which further described the Ghost Dance were included. Mark R. Rashtuni The American Indian is one of the most neglected persons in the world as far as missionary effort is concerned, but he is one of the most important in terms of the missionary challenge to the Church. The American Indian is a standing indictment against the Christianity of this nation. Our Great Commission commands us to carry the Gospel to all peoples. If we have so signally failed among the American Indians, that in the last sixty years, instead of winning more Indians to Christ, we have only half as many Christians as we had in 1890. It means our witness and our example are very sorry ones. It is, in a sense, much easier to convert people to Christ who are halfway around the world from us, because they see only our representatives, our missionaries, and do not see us. But the American Indian, tragically, sees not only the missionary but American Christianity itself, and his reaction to American Christianity is most negative. Who is the American Indian, and what is he like today? Some of you have perhaps seen him as you took a trip across the United States. As you stopped at some western railroad town near an Indian reservation, you no doubt saw some Indians lounging around the railroad station, or near the local hotel and bars. In many instances, they may have seemed to be no more than a group of winos. If such was your impression, You are probably right, a large percentage of them are alcoholics. Then, if you have been on an Indian reservation and seen how they live, you have probably been quite upset by the things you saw. It is not unusual to find them living in the most abject circumstances, circumstances under which disease thrives, TB and venereal diseases in particular. I have seen Indians live, ten or fourteen of them together, in a little log cabin with a dirt floor that is perhaps no bigger than eight or ten feet by twelve feet. You can easily imagine how miserable it is to live under such conditions. Perhaps they have just one bed, and nothing but bedrolls for the rest of the family. People who see these things very often say that the government ought to do something for the Indians. The answer to that is that the government has already done too much, far too much, and that we, the Christians of America, have done far too little. To understand how all this came to be, let's look at the history of the American Indian. It would be easy to paint a tragic story of the mistreatment of the American Indian, and it would be easy to do it with historical data. It would be very easy to go back into our Presbyterian Historical Society's records and find stories of how Indians were deliberately inoculated with smallpox, which killed them, because they had no resistance to it, or were deliberately and systematically debauched so that they might be eliminated, and their land taken over by the white man. But I think such stories would paint an unfair picture. I think a much more honest and realistic picture has been given by one of the old Indians on the Owyhee Reservation in Nevada, where I served for eight and a half years, from 1944 to 1953. He said, and I quote, We hear a lot of the people on the outside making a great to-do about the mistreatment of the Indians, and a lot of our own people are ready to tell such stories, but when you look at it honestly, this is the story. The white man wanted what we had, our land, but he didn't want us. We wanted what the white man had, his improvements, his guns, his modern conveniences, but we didn't want him. And so we fought, each wanting what the other had, but not wanting the other and trying to eliminate him, and we lost. That's the story. Now, that's a candid, realistic Indian account of the situation. Of course, it neglects one factor that the white man in this situation was ostensibly a Christian. The conflict was a long, hard, and bitter one. The Indian fought from the beginning. And because he fought so strenuously for his freedom, there were many who said that the only thing that could be done with the Indian was to exterminate him, wipe him out. They could not subject him to slavery. Very early on, the Spaniards had tried, but it was impossible to enslave the American Indian. He absolutely refused. If Indians were taken captive and enslaved, they either died or they fought and escaped. To this very day, the Indians have a strong prejudice against Negroes. They say, and I quote, The Negro became a slave. You can't say much for people who become slaves. You either die or you fight for freedom. We fought for freedom, and we were beaten. But we were never made slaves. End quote. Of course, that was the reason for the long and bitter struggle. The Indian refused to give up. Outnumbered tremendously, he fought against the white man, who had superior equipment, and time and again defeated him. By and large, the only way the Indians could be beaten was by superior equipment and overwhelming numbers. The greatest military strategist the North American continent has ever produced was Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce Indians, Chief Joseph's maneuvers in Indian wars are a classic of military brilliance. He took a handful of warriors, a tremendous number of women, both young and old, children and all the paraphernalia of an Indian camp, and defeated the U.S. Army again and again. It was not until he was near the Canadian border, and believed he and his people were safe, perhaps even across the border, that the U.S. Army under General Oliver O. Howard overtook him, while he was completely unprepared for an attack, and decimated his band. Indians are still close to these events. I have talked to old Indians, some of them now Presbyterian elders, who were young boys, aged nine to eleven, at the time of Chief Joseph's War, who saw the American cavalry tear into the Indian camp, and wipe out a sizable portion of the people. The Battle of Wounded Knee, which ended the Psyox uprising under the Medicine Man, Sitting Bull, took place only in 1890. It was in 1911 that the last Indian Trouble in Nevada, led by Shoshone Mike with his band of Shoshone Indians, was finally put down with the extermination of his group. That's very recent history. Although some of the bitterest fighting was waged in the last half of the 19th century, it was the fighting of desperation. After 1869, the Indian knew he was defeated. Many of the Indian uprisings came later. But in 1869, the Indian knew his day was finished. What happened in 1869? In that year, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in utah the dignitaries gathered together for that great occasion where the last spike was driven and the first train spanned the continent the indians who watched from the mountains saw that great iron monster hurtling across the plains over the mountains and through the canyons and knew that for them the end had come as long as the white men marched across the country on horseback in covered wagons or as isolated stragglers He could be met and defeated, but when he crossed the country in his great iron monster, that was something final, transcending anything the Indian knew, something that declared the white man was here to stay. Not only was he here to stay, but he was binding the continent to himself with the ties of iron. A very significant movement in the history of the American Indian. One born of this defeat and pessimism also began in 1869, the Ghost Dance. The Ghost Dance began in Nevada. From Nevada it spread throughout the western states, eastward across the Mississippi and into Canada, and, to a certain extent, into Mexico. The old Indians dreamed dreams, and the young men saw visions as the Ghost Dance prophets went from tribe to tribe, carrying the news. They told stories of how God's son came into the world, and the white man killed him, and they said that God's son told the people he would come back again. I quote, He's going to come back. We've seen visions. He's going to come back, and he is going to take all the white men and punish them for their wickedness. And a great wind is going to sweep the continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and it's going to pick up all the white men, and deposit them in the Pacific Ocean. After they have been swept off the continent, the buffalo and the antelope and the elk will come back again. The grass will be knee-deep on the thousand hills of America, and the Indian will live as he once lived. The dead will come back from their graves and rejoin the Indians of today, and there will be a great, a glorious life. End quote. Other accounts of the ghost dance movement confuse Montezuma and Jesus. Montezuma, the great Indian emperor in Mexico, and Jesus Christ were both slain by the white man. Having heard vague stories about both, some Indians merged the two figures. And so they danced the ghost dance, believing that when they fulfilled all the conditions, and the spirits were pleased, the gray's Hour would come. They danced, but in pessimism gave it up. But then fresh prophets would come from Nevada, carrying the news of certain conditions they had newly dreamed about, and saying that if the people only met these conditions, deliverance would come. This time it would come for sure. So again they would dance, night after night, day after day, until they dropped from exhaustion. And again, the pessimism and the cynicism would set in. Several anthropologists wrote about the ghost dance and its believers. These studies are accurate, and yet very faulty, because scholars did not talk to the Indian dissenters. I met a few Syox Indians who told me that Sitting Bull was not a chief that he was a coward. Indians connected with the U.S. Army shot him because they hated him, and they resented the fact that he had led so many Psyoks into the ghost dance cult. There was no such killing among the Paiutes and Shoshones, but there was a great deal of jeering and mockery directed at the dancers. Even in my day, a few older people were sometimes put down by being reminded that they had been ghost dancers. The Indian is too often identified with a variety of practices and events which interest anthropologists. The ghost dance did and does interest them, and rightfully so. Certainly, I was very much interested in it. But I soon realized that this was one reason why most Indians quietly disliked the various scholars who studied their culture. These scholars studied the Ghost Dance people, but not their Indian critiques. The Ghost Dance continued, sweeping through the West, rising and subsiding until the last flicker of it passed away in 1932, with the death in Nevada of Jack Wilson the leader or prophet of the ghost-dance movement. With that came a deep hopelessness, utter defeat, abject pessimism, and also the rise of peyotism, a religious narcotic cult. Peyote is worshipped—it is called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit—in some groups. In others it is given pagan names and in others a mixture of Christian and pagan terminology. Practitioners worship that narcotic. It is protected by the Indian Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and legalized by the United States, because it is used, they say, by a religious group. They worship it, and it dulls their intelligence, destroys their moral fibre, and increasingly has laid waste the Indian peoples of America the deaths which can be attributed to peyote are beyond a description there are no statistics because government doctors are afraid to attribute any death to peyote since the government protects it actually the number of deaths is enormous while the moral decadence degeneration and degradation that accompany the use of peyote is extensive Some of the old Indians tried to make a stand against peyote. When I first went to the reservation, I recall vividly an incident at a funeral service. About an hour before I was to conduct the service, the funeral feast was still going on, with perhaps a hundred people gathered to partake of it, and we were standing around the campfire outside the cabin as the food was being served. An old Shoshone began to speak to the young man, many of whom were adherents of the peyote cult, saying, and I quote, Let us go back to the old ways, the good old ways. Worship the wolf. He is the true God. Don't pay any attention to the white man and his religion. They don't believe in it. Look at the government people. Look at the white man you see when you go to town, and see how many of them believe in Christianity. Leave the new ways and go back to the old ways. Worship the wolf. Quote. It was futile. The old Indian ways were dead. They had little appeal. And the kind of religion that you and I tried to give them also had very little appeal. As far as they were concerned, both were dead. The wolf and the religion of Jesus Christ. What had happened to the Indians? let's look back. First of all, to the old Indian character. Today, the Indian is a defeated man, a man lacking in character, an alcoholic, sexually very unstable, and highly immoral. But to the Indian of a hundred years ago, the Indian of two hundred or three hundred years ago was a very different person. The Plains Indian, for example, who inhabited most of the West, except for the southwest and some of the coast, could be characterized by a term so common in this country in the 1920s and early 1930s, rugged individualists. That was the life of the Plains Indian. His entire training was geared for the single purpose of preparing him to meet life and survive. To be a man was to be someone capable of withstanding all kinds of suffering surviving under the most adverse circumstances, standing up to almost any condition and meeting it alone or as part of a group. The children knew instinctively what to do. Perhaps there was a badger hole nearby. They'd crawl into that hole, pull leaves and rubble over the top of it, and stay there until darkness fell. Not until it was dark, when they could hear no noise or activity in the area, did they come out. I remember one such story of a boy of less than school age, in terms of our culture, who crawled into a place of refuge and stayed there all day after his band was attacked. When he came out at night, his band had been wiped out and his father was barely alive. Quote, Son, unquote, the father said, Quote, we'll try to go a little ways. Unquote. They did try, but then had to rest, because the man was obviously failing. As they lay down to rest, the father said, "'Son, after a while, when you wake up, feel me. If I am cold, don't cry, don't stay by me, don't bother with me, keep moving. When you hear sounds of an Indian camp, don't go into it. Go to the side from which the wind is blowing.' Lest the dogs smell you and come after you, and there wait until it's dark. Then creep close and listen, and if you hear our language being spoken, then go into the camp, but if not, keep moving." That boy, in early winter when the nights were down to zero, and sometimes lower, kept moving for more than two weeks until he found a band of his own people, and joined it. How many of our children could survive under those circumstances? They would have been dead within a day. But that Indian child survived. Thus were the Indian children reared and trained. To be a man among the Psyhocks, you had to dance the song-dance. To dance the song-dance meant you had to subject yourself to a tremendous ritual of torture. You could not marry or be a warrior unless you danced the sun dance. There was a pole, like a maypole, with leather thongs hanging from it. The candidates for manhood came near, and the warriors pried up the muscles on the youths' backs, slipped the thongs under them, and singed the thongs up tight so that the young men would be on their toes for three days and three nights. They were to dance around the pole without wincing once, singing happy songs about the privilege of manhood. If one collapsed, which meant he'd ripped open the muscles on his back, he would have to wait until the next year before he could apply again for manhood. It was a fearful ordeal, but every Sioux Indian in the old days danced the song dance before he was a man. There are similar stories among the Shashones. One of the things that I was interested in when I first went to the reservation was to hear stories of scalping from a member of my own session. I don't think there are many Presbyterian ministers in the United States who had a member of his session tell them about scalping and demonstrate the art, without the realistic items, but enough to give a good description of the technique of scalping. Quote, we Shashoones he said, quote, were very humane in our scalping. We didn't always kill the person. We scalped him because if we weren't too angry with him, we turned him loose. End quote. He told me of a blacksmith up in the Bruno River country who was one of the last white man to be scalped, and was always grateful and friendly to the Indians afterwards. He had expected to be killed. But since he lost nothing more than his scalp, he was quite congenial afterward, and the Indians frequently visited him in later years. The technique, as he described it, is significant. Among young Shoshones, if two men were competing for their chieftainship, and they wanted to bet, one against the other, on who was the better runner, better hunter, or better shot with the bow and arrow they would bet their scalps. The loser of the contest would have to let the winner scalp him. In so doing, he could demonstrate his own manhood and actually win a victory in the whole situation if he could keep the girls in stitches while being scalped. He would sit on a rock, and the other man would take a tight thong and tie it around his head, run a short knife around it, put his kneecap down on it, and yank and lift the whole thing. Of course, no hair or skin would ever grow there again. If, while this was being done, instead of wincing or crying, the young man could keep the watching girls amused, then he emerged the winner by demonstrating his ability to be a man. This capacity to take punishment and endure suffering is trained into the young Indian from early childhood. As a result, Indians to this day are much quieter people than whites, their children much quieter under any and every circumstance than white children. It's very rare for an Indian woman to express any pain or to cry out in childbirth, no matter how difficult the labour. Indeed, it's very rare to hear from any Indian, in a serious accident, any acknowledgement of pain. A classic instance of that involved a couple of young men, whom we used to have occasionally in our church. One of them, Roy, was an especially good friend of mine. Roy and the other young man, Hooper, used to fight whenever they met, and Roy usually took a beating. Every Saturday night, when they got drunk, something would draw the two of them together for a terrific fight. And when I say fight, it was a rough affair. In one of the last fights they had, Roy was so badly beaten that his jaw had to be wired, and it took several months to heal. So, when he was up and around again, he pretended he was drunk one Saturday night, and went to the mining camp. When Hooper jumped him, Roy was ready for it, and worked him over quite thoroughly with a knife. Dr. Hyde was our doctor at the time and was staying at a mining camp. Told me how Hooper walked two miles from the scene of the knifing with a couple of friends and said on arrival, Hey, Doc, can you sew me up? He was carrying his intestines in his hands. A single perforation in the intestines is almost invariably fatal, Dr. Hyde told me. In this case, there were two. More than that, Hooper required more than 950 stitches before being driven 16 miles to the Reservation Indian Hospital, where his patching up could be concluded. During the entire time, Dr. High told me there was not a wince or a whimper from the man. In a month, Hooper was up and about, and drunk again. You can see that the old Indian character was a rugged one, They were trained to meet life and survive. They were hard, disciplined warriors. Their character was, of course, savage, but it had integrity. They were honest men, trustworthy and self-reliant, but they were in the way. When the Indian was defeated, the white men didn't want any part of him. People didn't want Indians roaming across the new ranches farms towns and cities hunting in their old ways so the federal government set up the reservation system wherein the indians were given a piece of land upon which they were ordered to stay the indian was not used to farming in fact for him farming was woman's work even chiefs who were partial to farming and tried to lead their people into the new way of life when they were about to be caught with a shovel or farm implement in hand They hid it immediately. They were ashamed. It was like a man being caught wearing an apron. Farming was women's work. Hunting, fishing and fighting were a man's work. By and large, in those days, the government didn't try to teach Indians anything. For many years, the system was simply this. Put the Indians on a reservation. Tell them that if they leave, the army will go after them and while they are on the reservation, tell them to report to the government office every Saturday, or every other Saturday, for a ration of goods, clothing, and necessities of life. Of course, that meant that the Indian didn't have to work. He had his living handed to him. After a few years of government handouts, the Indian character was completely destroyed. Take any hundred people from any city in the United States, place them on a reservation, and tell them, quote, Now you don't have to work for the next 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. All you have to do is report to the government agent and receive your rations, and that's all. What you do with your time is your own. Quote. You will wreck their character. The Indian forgot how to hunt and fish, He forgot how to do anything except to sit and vegetate. The result was the total destruction of the Indian character. Instead of the self-reliant, independent person he had always been, the Indian became a person without character, without any integrity, shiftless, insecure, alcoholic, and deceased. In 1887, the government instituted its first definite policy to Americanize the Indians. The theory behind the General Allotment Act was that you should try to make Americans out of the Indians and prepare them for their rightful place in the American life. It was a good theory, technically, but false in execution. The method by which they sought to Americanize the Indian was to go into the reservations, set up government boarding schools, and tell the Indians, your children must be surrendered to the government. They shall be placed in these boarding schools, here or moved elsewhere to another location. And if you refuse, the army will come after you." Quote. So the Indian home was broken. You can never destroy the home life of any people and have anything left. Wherever you are, you always have to begin with this basic unit, the family. This policy destroyed the home. The children indeed were educated, taken through boarding schools, through the 8th grade, and sometimes beyond. Then they returned home as strangers to their families, insecure, unloved, ready the minute they were turned loose to find some kind of security in the bottle. This system totally debauched the Indians. The sad part of it is that the churches cooperated in it for many years because they were included in the boarding school program with compulsory Christian training. But that kind of training did not give the Indians Christianity. You cannot force Christianity on any people. And when you destroy the character of a people, you cannot at the same time give them faith. The end result was that the Indian was destroyed even further. The second policy came in 1933 and was worse yet. The New Deal under Roosevelt, Secretary of Interior, Harold L. Ikes, and John Collier instituted the policy of Indianizing the Indians. All this stemmed from the dream of one man, Collier, the President's Commissioner of Indian Affairs. In the 1920s, on his way to a vacation in Mexico, Collier stopped in Arizona and New Mexico, and saw some of the Indians there, the Hopi and the Tsuni, perform their dances. It gave him a powerful vision of what life should be like in America, and he said, and I quote, The reason for all the tension and frustration in modern life is that we have lost our contact with life as it should be lived. The thing to do is to take the Indian and Indianize him again, recreate the old Indian life, and make that a pattern for the rebuilding of America." He believed in a communistic order, such as he found among the Hopi and the Tsuni. Not a Marxist communism, but a primitive communism, such as he saw among those particular tribes. It is not the usual pattern among Indian tribes, but it does exist in one or two tribes in the southwest. This was Collier's vision. He set out to make it the pattern for all Indians throughout the United States. Having done that, he hoped to make collectivism the pattern for all American life. He pushed his program vigorously. The Indians protested but to no avail, it usually resulted in the favouring of incompetence throughout the United States. The result of this policy was to increase the debauchery of the Indian character. It led to the rise of such movements as the Pan-American Indian Group, a communist front. It furthered the Peyote Movement, because John Collier strongly favoured it. It led to nothing but tragedy, The third policy came with Eisenhower. Its goal was to break up the reservations and rehabilitate the Indians by furthering their general participation in American life, by helping them move into cities. The weakness of this policy is that it also assumes that the future of the Indian depends on a government programme. Government cannot create character. Although it had destroyed it, It can no more create character in the Indians by acts of administration than it can create character in the American people by acts of Congress. Since the Indian problem is basically one of faith and character, it is basically a problem for the Christian Church. Where do we stand? I have already pointed out that we have half as many Christian Indians as we had in the 1890s. Worse. The Indians have no use for our faith. Why? Because their feeling is that when you send them a missionary, when you try to teach them Christianity, it's just another case of hand-me-downs from the white man. They feel that you don't believe in Christianity, and that's why they see so little of it among you. The government doesn't believe in it, and there's nothing Christian about the government. Look what is taught in the government schools. Evolution. The Bible has no place in the schools. The schools don't believe in it. Go to the churches. You hear the preachers preaching the same kind of thing that's taught in the schools. Go to the Bible-believing churches. How many of them care about you? The Indian. How many of them are interested in you? They don't believe. They are just giving you the hand-me-downs. The Indians' attitude is that Christianity is dead, and there is no reason for them to take over something that is dead and cast off by Americans. They feel that whites are hypocrites, professing Christianity but not believing in it. Indians have some reason to believe that. When they go to a city and visit a church, by and large they do not care for noisy churches the Indians being a very quiet people. If they come to a Presbyterian church, how welcomed are they? Most whites feel, quote, Well, people like that are ignorant, they're backward. Let them go to one of the other churches where there are people of a lower class. Put them among people where they can feel more at home, and they'll fit in better in those churches. End quote. At almost any church they go to, they will be outsiders. That's just the plain fact. And they know it. They've tried it. They are strangers in any church they go to, even if they are met with a glad hand by a handful of people in the church. It means nothing to them. The Indians may know that they are weak in certain character traits espoused in these churches, but they also expect to see some of the practical application of those traits that have, in fact, characterized Indian life. Suppose an Indian couple dies, leaving children. Is there any problem? None at all. Those children can find a home almost anywhere on the reservation. They can walk into any home and be welcomed. They can pick their home. No one will turn them down. If there are a handful of children, say five or six, and those children decide to walk into your home, if you're an Indian, you wouldn't say a word. You would take them in. Many a time I visited one of our elders and found his house full of people. I would ask the wife, Who is that? Some relative? She would reply, No, I've never seen him before. He just came here from the other side of the state and had no place to stay, and so he came here. I would then ask, Well, are you going to put him up or what? She would answer, Yes, he's going to get a job here with the road crew at the government agency, so maybe he'll be here a year or two. No problem. Someone wanted a place to stay, and someone took them in. I saw the same woman, a year before I left, with small children. Some Indians, from quite some distance away, had been killed in an accident. They had several small children, and now this couple in their seventies had taken those children in. Why? When the now-dead parents used to visit the reservation, they got into the habit of staying with this couple so that was the place for the children to come. Now this elderly couple was starting all over again with the children, one of them still in diapers. No problem at all. It was simply the human thing to do. You can find reasons for this in the Indian background. You can say that perhaps it's not real kindliness, but one of those survival tactics left over from the early days. But whatever reason you give for it, it is there. It's a common humanity. And even if you find a selfish motive for it, it nevertheless exists. By comparison, your life and mine, here in the city, is a very cruel, unchristian kind of life. It has no significance to the Indians. There is nothing to recommend it to them. You might talk about Christianity as the religion that reveals God's love to man. But the Indians will think you are a hypocrite. They don't see any love in Christians. I recall one incident from our early days at the reservation, in which a carload of migrants with a number of small children were passing through. They were obviously people of low character. In fact, they'd stolen a tire at a filling station on their way. They were making a shortcut through the reservation, and realized too late what rough country it was. They had no money, nor anywhere to stay. The night was bitterly cold. They parked in front of our place. There was only one thing to do, or else our work on the reservation would be ended, and we would have to move out. We took them in, and they filled the living room and every other room in the house, laid down their bedding and stretched out. If we had allowed them to spend the night outside, we couldn't have commanded our faith to the Indians, because we would have been lacking in the common humanity that they took for granted. They don't see much common humanity in us, and therefore think that we don't believe our own religion. And when they see the whole picture, that Christianity isn't taught in the schools, and in fact is disbelieved that the fundamentals of the faith are denied from many pulpits, and that those who profess to believe are lacking in common humanity. They conclude it's a hand me down, it's a dead thing. Why bother with it? The Church's failure with the Indians is a standing indictment of our Christian faith. One more story before I conclude although I could go on at great length. I recall the Christmas of 1945, when one of the young Indians, Roy, who had been involved in the knifing incident, who'd done the knifing, in fact, had me to his house for dinner. As we sat around the table in the evening, the meal was being prepared by his two sisters. He spent a great deal of time telling me about his experiences in the armed services, and he knew the insides of a good many jails across the country. He told me about fights and brawls he'd gone into here, there and everywhere, and he enjoyed telling about them. He was doing quite a bit of bragging. As the evening progressed, he grew somewhat serious. As we looked out of the window and saw the kerosene lamps being lit in one cabin after another across the valley, he pointed to them and said, quote, Look at those people of mine. They're no good. They're like me, just no account. And they're fit for is a reservation where someone puts a fence around them and takes care of them. That's it. They're not fit for anything else. End quote. quote. but, end quote, he went on, quote, I've been across the country two or three times now in the last few years, and I've learned something. The white man isn't much better. He has reservation fever now. He wants someone to put a fence around the whole North American continent and take care of him. He wants the government to give him a handout, and to look after him just like the Uncle Sam looks after us. And he's going to get it. If some outfit doesn't come in and do it for him, some foreign country, and turn the whole of the United States into a reservation. He'll do it to himself. You wait and see. Cause he's got reservation fever. Quote. He was right. Absolutely right. The basic problem today in the American Indian missions is our problem too. Are we going to live our faith? What well, we do to the American Indian today and tomorrow depends on what we ourselves do. This will mark the extent to which we believe our faith, the extent to which we are willing to be Christians when it means putting ourselves out and being uncomfortable, making sacrifices of our personal privacy, our personal liberty, or our personal convenience for the sake of Jesus Christ. We have forgotten what Christian hospitality means. The Indian recognizes this lack, and so the American Indian today Constitutes a standing indictment against American Christianity. What are we going to do for the American Indian? How are we going to meet our responsibility to Jesus Christ?